you know, I'm in the oval trying not to have a panic attack, I'm sure, right? Like, you know, poor girl from D.C., I'm sitting in the oval, just kicking it with the president. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Judy Smith joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. We are so excited. This interview has been a long time in the making. Judy is a crisis management expert and is the founder and CEO of Smith & Company. Her clients include some of the world's most famous celebs, politicians, and Fortune 500 companies in the world. Over her career in the public and private sectors, she's had a front row seat to some of the most historic events of the modern era. Also, she's the real life inspiration for Olivia Pope from ABC's hit TV show, Scandal. Carly and I have seen every single episode. Full disclosure, she's also been a trusted skim advisor and someone we've turned to for advice over the years, uh, which is why we are so excited to have you on. Judy, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. I'm so excited. I can't believe we got this. You are like (laughs) notoriously private. You literally have been putting this off for years and all we needed was a pandemic to have you stuck at home to be able to do this. I've also been waiting for you to cancel it all day. I I couldn't because it was you guys. I couldn't couldn't do it. I thought about it though. So we're going to, we're going to jump in before you can back out. Scam your resume for us. Senior advisor and counsel to corporations, associations, government institutions, high-profile individuals, worked at the White House, have been doing uh, communications for a very long time, too many years to, to name. But the most important thing that I can skim that's not on my resume is that I love it. Aside from you loving it, what's something that's not Googleable about you? that people would be surprised by or that they should know? Wow, there's a lot of things that not, that's not Google about me. Well, I tell you this, yesterday I was talking about this. Someone had asked me, you know, how do you sort of balance all of what you do, right? I said, A, I'm not a big balanced person, but what I have done um, over the years is trying to make sure that I take time for myself every single day. I take about 30 minutes and I usually walk. I'm a big walker. Just walking, it's something about it just gives you a sense of solitude and peacefulness. I love nature, love the water. You know, it's just looking for that moment of, uh, of peace, basically. And it's important though, right? I think oftentimes we are the last ones that we take care of and we really need to be the first ones. So I'm going to jump into where you began, which is little Judy, uh, grew up in Washington, DC. I'm just really curious, like what you were like as a kid. And when we're all kids, we all think about, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do blank. 
what did you imagine you would do? Ah, that's a tough question. I will say as a kid, I was probably very annoying. I'm pretty sure of that. I have a best friend that I've known for a very long time. I call her being hit, right? And so when I was thinking about writing a book and I was stuck and she asked me, you know, I said, I'm trying to figure out how I got into all of this stuff. And she said, well, I can help you there. And she reminded me of, I was, I don't know, like six or seven, and there was a dodgeball fight in the back alley. I wasn't even involved in it. I totally inserted myself in it. Let's all come together, resolve this issue, right? And then there was a couple in the neighborhood that was broken up, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, all of probably 10, right? But it meant that there was no playing going on in the neighborhood, because they weren't together. So people had to choose sides. So I said, I'm tired of that. We all need to come together. Y'all need to make up and get that together. And then she reminded me, I organized a first press conference when I was, I don't know, 11, something like that. And she reminded me of, you know, when you are in um, high school, I guess junior high or high school, you know, boys kind of enter your life. And (laughs) She reminded me of a a time when we were at some event and some, you know, young girl came over and said, you know, I understand that you like my boyfriend, something crazy like that. And I said, well, no, that's an incorrect factual statement, right? Like, I don't like your boyfriend. He's interested in me, but I have pointed out to him that I have no interest in him. And so there's no reason oh to have this conversation. We should all be friends. Being here reminds me of how often we used to all get into trouble, right, in trying to logically solve problems. You clearly had a knack for taking a step back, seeing what people were disagreeing about and how to find the solution. At what point did you realize, like, this is a marketable skill? I can make a career out of this. Well, you know, I didn't realize it, right? I didn't choose this career like it chose me. And so I think the the skill sets, I will say, I think that have been helpful is the ability to give sound advice in a very straightforward way. The ability to not have fear about it. I think oftentimes advisors don't really perhaps do straight talk and say exactly what you mean. And I think I was talking about this yesterday. I think growing up without a lot and, you know, parents really talking about that you treat everybody with decency and respect. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States or if, you know, you are somebody who picks up your trash twice a week. And so because of that, I feel very comfortable that I don't have that fear of telling a a CEO that that is absolutely wrong. That makes no sense, right? Here are the consequences of those actions and you need to understand that. So it, it has given me a sense of fearlessness that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that you would get from do you know what I mean from, from that principle? Growing up in D.C., did you think you were going to work in the White House? 
Well, that was such an incredible lark. No, I mean, absolutely not. You know, when I got called about it, you know, I kept saying, I said, now, I thought actually my friend, aka Beanhead, was playing a prank on me, <laughs> right? And so when the press secretary called, I said, oh, you go back and tell Michelle I am not falling for this. How much money does she pay you? I'm not going to buy it. And I hung up on him, right? Literally, I hung up on him. And so he called back and said, no. And then I said, okay, if you're telling me the truth, what does the oval look like? Now, that was like a total ridiculous, insane question. Why? Because you could see what the oval looks like on TV. But at the time, I didn't think about it. But no, I mean, I thought that that was a total lark. I said, well, you know, Smith is a very common name. And I said, you know, I'm not political. I don't give any money to anybody. I have no money to give to anybody. I mean, you know, I don't know anybody in politics. And he said, no, no, I I got the right person. So, you know, I came in and talked to him. And then he said, the president wants to meet you. For our audience, which president? Oh, I'm sorry, President Bush, dad. And, you know, I'm in the Oval trying not to have a panic attack, I'm sure, right? Like, uh, you know, poor girl from D.C., I'm sitting in the Oval, just kicking it with the president. And then he said, uh, come hang out with me for the day. And then I'm going to Marine One, and then I'm on Air Force One. I'm like, oh, God, please don't let me throw up. No, this would be awful. (laughs) It was great. I mean, you know, we spent the day together and just talked about life and family and didn't have anything to do with politics. So it was good. It's amazing thinking about who you are now and where you are and thinking about you being nervous. That was going to be my exact question, which is one of the things that I think is very remarkable about you and like getting to know you over these last few years is you are, at least to us, and public facing, like very calm, eerily calm sometimes. And I'm very curious, do you get stressed? I mean, I assume everyone does, but how does that stress manifest? And do you ever just lose it? I don't think I've ever lost it. No, I do get stressed. And also too, when speaking to clients and just folks, sometimes people want to do things and you know they want to do it, but at particular times when it's high stakes, they may not have the courage, right? And so you have to give them a room and space and the ability to see that when they get on the other side of it, that it's going to be okay. And I wouldn't ask people to sort of take that leap or jump if I didn't feel 100% confident about it. And one of the things that I tell you what we do that it's probably maybe unique, but When I have clients, I always work backwards, right? So I would say, well, where do you want to end up, right? Where do you want to be standing? Where do you want to end up? What's the other side of this look like? And so that's where I start. And I try to figure out a strategy to get them there. In that way, you are in some ways executing against where you know success is going to be instead of guessing at it, right? So I try to be very, very scientific about it. How do you define crisis comms and what constitutes a crisis? And I remind myself this literally every time I speak to you. Yeah, like Judy's <laughs> like, I've seen her on Contra, like this is not yes. a crisis. 
I think, look, a crisis can be to, on the company side, I think, and probably on the personal side, you want to look at it is does it really affect your core brand, right? The other thing I think that you really have to weigh given where we are is how do you respond to that and if you respond, right? Sometimes you don't really need to respond to things that are going on around you if it's on social media or, or something like that. So I think you have to, you know, I think you have to weigh it, right? And then determine does it impact your brand in a very real and meaningful way? If it's something that you feel that doesn't and you just don't like it, right, or it makes you uncomfortable and people are going to move on in two hours, then no, you shouldn't. One of the things that I find so surprising and refreshing about you is you see literally the worst sides of people and are in companies and government's most difficult situations at times. And yet when I talk to you, I get a sense of realism, but I don't necessarily get a sense of cynicism. And maybe that's just, you hide it really well. But how do you not feel discouraged? I don't feel discouraged because I am just a very hopeful person, right? So I think if you can think about positive things versus negative things, wouldn't you choose positive, right? Or think about this. If you wanted to think about, let's just say that the two of you wanted to start a successful business, right? And you have two thoughts. You can think about, oh God, I can't do this. Uh, Or you can say, yes, I can do it, right? So why wouldn't you want to choose the uplifting or positive one versus the negative one. Choose the possibility versus the other option. You don't have anything to lose with it, right? So it seems like a it seems like a very logical, practical choice to me. Have you ever fired a client? Oh God, yes. Yes. <laughs> what like what would make you fire a client? I think in order to go through a crisis you have to be aligned with the strategy, right? And sometimes, and clients have their right, right? Not to, you know, say, oh, I thought the strategy was good, but now I want to switch. And what do you think about that? So I think if clients are not aligned on what they're trying to accomplish and how we think it should be accomplished, then they should have the choice, Right. And I should have that choice as well for them to work with somebody else and for me to move on. So and I think you just have to recognize that. Right. You got to know when things are not working. In the same line of thought, you know, one of the things that I I thought was really interesting. We were talking about this the other day is you don't work with everyone. So not even firing clients. But how do you decide who gets the Smith and Co service? Yeah, Well, it has to be clients that we think that we can make a difference on and that we can really assist, right? When I first started my business, probably like most folks that are small businesses, you know, I was doing things. Somebody would say, oh, hey, can you, I don't know, do an ad campaign? Can you print flyers? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do all those things. And really, 
those were not things I was good at. And so I tried to really focus on what I feel like as a firm that we are good at and the service that we can offer. And I think if you stay in that sort of arena that you can offer good services to clients and that you can be aligned with clients in how you want to help them. How we communicate has obviously completely shifted and what crisis communications needs to be has shifted, like, you know, whether it's social and Instagram or understanding kind of where potential like vulnerabilities are for a client. How do you stay smart on this? Um, I tell you how you do it is that one of the things that you always want to think about when you have not just a crisis or just a problem or issue you're trying to figure out is I always think about the landscape, right? What's the backdrop of the problem? And so if you don't have a really clear understanding of that, you can't really help. Your advice will be off, right? And so being able to make sure you understand culture, making sure you have a good sense of the client's various stakeholders. And you just really, you have to stay, uh, you have to stay in tune with, with things. And I think one of the ways that you do that is just in your life and your work to show up fully present and have an understanding of the world and what's going on around you. One of the things that I always feel like is really beneficial when we talk to our mentors and advisors, we feel like everything is a crisis because of the moment that we're in. (laughs) That's normal. That's normal. (laughs) When you think of all of the different crises that you have in some way been a part of either as working for someone working in the White House or just experiencing as a person, what has been the most difficult one? I would say COVID, what what we're dealing with now. I'm like, really? Yeah, I was hoping you were going to say something else. Well, let me tell you why. Because, you know, I am a a fixer. So when I see issues or problems, I'm thinking, okay, what's the workaround? What's the strategy? What's the fix? So I worked on SARS and I worked on Ebola, right? And so when this hit us as a country and as the world, I kept trying to figure out, like, what can I do to help fix this? What can I do to to help? Because that's me at my core, right? How can I help and assist? And it just hit me that everybody I talked to was complaining that they didn't have really any sort of straightforward you know, scientific data and information. And so we were lucky enough to partner with Johns Hopkins and felt so incredibly lucky for that because they are amazing. And we ended up providing information to almost 9 million people. That to me is how I could, you know, help. But yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a difficult one, right? Because the, the way out of it is a vaccine, And we certainly don't know. I mean, there are all of these hopes, right? But we don't know when that's going to, when that's going to occur. But what did you guys think? I'm turning the tables. What did you guys think? From the outside, I thought a Ron Contra would be like really difficult. I was not going to say that or 9-11. Like like I wasn't expecting COVID. Did I tell you something about a Ron Contra? That was my first job out of law school. 
Oh my gosh. Right. It was my first job out of law school. I tell you this real quick story. I was supposed to be going to work in New York at a law firm, right? It was a big monkey muck law firm. I was summer associate there. They had my desk, my office. They had given me the sign-in bonus. I had already spent the sign-in bonus. But so my girlfriend who worked at the Iran Contra invited me to go to lunch. So when we were having lunch in her office, these attorneys were coming in. Uh, she was introducing me and, you know, said, oh, she has a background in communications. And they were saying, well, what do you think about what we're doing in Iran Contra? And I said, well, the messaging, uh, it's kind of off. And, and then I might have said that something sucked. I think I, I said that, right? And so we had a great lunch and then I went home. And then that next day, she called me up, my buddy. She said, hey, the head of the investigation, Judge Walsh, wants to, you to come in. And I'm like, oh, God. I said, you're going to get in trouble? Did I get you fired? What did I say? Why did I keep my big mouth shut? And she said, no, he wants to talk to you. So I go in there. And, uh, you know, I did the nice, oh, Judge Walsh, it's so nice to meet you, such an honor and a privilege. And I remember me sitting down, and the first thing he says, so I hear you think that we suck here. Oh, oh my, my God. God. I was like, well, no, sir, I don't know if those were the exact words <laughs> I used. Uh, so anyway, we got to talking, and he said, I want to offer you a job. And I said, well, sir, no, I already have a job. I got this job at Rogers and Wells. Um, he said, Rogers and Wells, you work with Bill? I'm like, well, who's Bill? I was a low life <laughs> summer associate. He said, well, Bill Rogers, he runs the firm. And he said, well, let me just call Bill. I'm like, do not call Bill. He gets on the phone. He's like, Bill, this is Larry. You got this amazing woman in your office. And she says she's got a boring job with you, but I need her here. And I'm just thinking, what? They're bothering? What's going on here? Oh, my gosh. And then all of a sudden, he passed the phone to me. And I'm like, Mr. Rogers, I wasn't trying to look for a job. I'm so sorry. I spent oh all this time in bonus. And he said, no. He said, you take that job. He said, I'll keep your job open for you. He said, scandals don't happen that often in Washington. Huh? That was decades ago. We know that's not true now. <laughs> he said, I'll keep your job open so you come back whenever you want. Wow. And I said, well, sir, it's this little small problem. Like I spent the money. He said, no, keep the sign and bonus. I said, okay, well, you seem like you're good at this stuff. I also have an apartment. I'm supposed to be moving in in two days. He said, what's the address? I gave him the address. He yelled the address out to his assistant. And he said, we represent the owners of your building. He said, I will get your what security is the story, Judy? back. And I'll keep your job open. I said, really? He said, yes. I said, okay. So all of a sudden, instead of going to big New York City, I started at the Iran-Contra investigation. The thing that has been important for me in all of the career things that I have done is being able to take risk and stepping out of zones that make you feel comfortable and safe. There was nothing safe about doing 
a television show. There was nothing safe about going to the Iran-Contra investigation. It was my first job out of law school. What the heck I know about that, right? And just having faith and confidence in yourself and the ability that you could do it. What is the worst thing that happened? That, oh, it won't work out so well? Okay, but so what? You walk away from that experience and it has to be some lessons learned that you get, you know, in going through that process. So those are the things that I try to try to focus on. One of the big takeaways that I, in just listening to that story, I probably would not have asked him about the apartment. I would have gone home and been like, great, you know, this is cool, but like, how the hell am I going to get out of this lease? We always ask about negotiating on this show. And that's an example of you starting at an early age. And I just want to point that out to listeners. That's a good point because usually when I'm negotiating, I go all in, right? It's it's that theory for me of, uh, I'm not going to use any bad words, but you can't go into things halfway, right? To me, you either are in it or not. Like I'm either with you or I'm not. There's no halfway for me on things, right? Olivia Pope. <laughs> Let's talk about scandal. How did you become, how did Olivia Pope become you? How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was writing a, a book and my agent said, go, let's go talk about, you know, a book. And it turned out to be, you know, television shows. I'm a news junkie. And so when they were setting up these meetings, I remember taking the red eye out. I was like, who is Shonda Rhimes? Who is, you know, Jerry Buckheimer? You know, all those sort of, I, I no, no clue, basically. But I ended up doing it for a few reasons and sort of had in my mind about what it would have to look like for me, right, personally. And one, it had to be someone who was good at what she did but was unapologetic about that, right? It had to be somebody who was very passionate about their work, but compassionate with their clients. And it had to be somebody who looked like me. And that was important because it was the first time that there was an African-American woman playing a lead, right, Mm -hmm. in 35 years. I will say that You know, people often think as individuals that we can't make a difference. And that is so far from the truth. Because there were people that said that you might as well let that go because nobody is going to do an African-American lead in the television show. So usually for me, all someone has to do is say that that's not going to happen. And I'm right. Let's make that happen, essentially. But the, the point that I was making on that is that the reason why the show was successful is because people leaned into it. They watched it. And by watching and supporting the show, the viewers were the greatest change agents, not me, the viewers, right? Because by watching it, the viewers said, this is good. This is okay. We want more of this. And so it opened up the doors in ways for the entertainment industry. What was your involvement with the show? Like, did you tell Shonda all your stories? I mean, you're so 
private. How did you actually get involved other than giving permission? Yeah, well, one of the things that has been, um, <laughs> that we know this because we live this every single day, there's so many crises that happen around the world in so many different ways. And so, you know, I was on the set, provided, you know, ideas for the show, none, you know, none of the clients. But like I said, there's so much that goes on the world to choose from. And then really providing advice and counsel in actually how one goes about solving a crisis. So there could be a framework for the show, you know, week to week, basically. Do you call your employees gladiators? No, I don't. I don't. (laughs) But you do wear a white coat a lot. I do. I do. Well, the white coat is very interesting because when we talk about gladiators, um, how that came about when I was talking about the work that I did and how passionate I am about it. I remember we all sitting around the room and like, yeah, you're like a gladiator. I'm like, yes, we are gladiators. We go out and we, you know, we get it done. But yes, white is one of my favorite colors. In doing prep for this, we heard that you had to give your former boss of the free world a heads up that there was going to be a long running storyline between Olivia and the president. How awkward was that? Well, you know, he, he was such a... He's such a kidder. And so one of the, you know, good crisis rules people want to have is you want to try to control the narrative, right, as much as you can. So I immediately said, I need to call him, right, because I know he is a jokester and a prankster. And and I wanted to let him know about the relationship. And so I talked to his assistant and said, oh, he's so proud of you. He's so excited about the show. He's going to have a viewing party. I'm thinking, God, God. (laughs) no, no. And so I said, tell him to call me. Tell him to call me. I need to talk to him. So he had called when I was on a conference call. It was about, I don't know, like 10 people, you know, so I couldn't get off when I saw the Texas number. By the way, when the president calls, like you get off. (laughs) I know, but yeah, I was working. I was working, right? So I said, I'll call him back. So I checked the voicemail. So he left this message on my cell and he said something like, um, love you, want you, you love me and call me back. This is the former leader of the free world. And I called him back and I said, dude, this is what I'm telling you right now. You cannot do that. He said, no, remember that time we got together? We started our affair. I said, no, oh my God. Man, <laughs> I said, stop it. And he said, look, I'm trying to stay relevant. I have young people in my office. And I said, listen to me. Do not joke about this thing here. Do not. Oh, my gosh. He said, well, I don't know. I said, listen to me. I'm going to send you talking points. And I said, if you don't follow those talking points, I am going to call your boss. And he said, you wouldn't. I said, don't play with me. I would. Which is, you know his wife, the first yeah. one. So anyway, he was extremely just very supportive. Aww. Okay. Time for our last round, quick round. You've almost survived. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Mm, probably night owl. Night owl. What is your best work from home productivity hack? Oh my God. A schedule, a list of things to do. So every Sunday, I write out the things that I want to accomplish during the week. 
right? And usually each night I get my priority list ready. So when I wake up, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. So I try to be very organized. Now that's very challenging. I will say for somebody who does crisis work, why? Because you don't have any control over your day, right? So I can have 30 things on my list that I'm trying to do. And maybe I might get to three depending on that. What's the last show you binge watched? I watched, I can't think of the name of the show. It was a few episodes. It was about the genocide in Rwanda. And I watched that. What questions do you ask yourself when you're about to make a big money decision? Well, is it going to make money? That's right. Is it going to work? What is the likelihood of success on that thing? (laughs) Do you have your own Quinn and Huck from Scandal? I have a really, really good team, but none of them kill dead bodies and move them from crime scenes. You know, I've got my bar license. I got to protect that. But I feel really blessed that I have a really, really strong team. We will let you go. Thank you for everything. And thank you for doing this. I actually had a good time. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had fun. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. Hi, my name is Kaylin Johnson Chandler, and I am the founder and chief creative officer of Effie's Paper, Stationery, and Whatnot. We are a lifestyle brand setting the trend for the cool accessories to buy, how to travel in style, and how much coffee it's chic to drink on a daily basis. We believe that ladies should surround themselves with pretty things that make their hearts leap. And our motto is the future is female and it's being fueled by black girl magic. I started Effie's Paper because I wanted to create lifestyle products that could coexist with today's technology. As a result, we offer our online customers wholesale and wholesale accounts an on-trend curated selection of stylish desk, stationery, travel, and gift accessories. I named the company Effie's Paper Stationery and Whatnot, always intending to have whatnots, but we started off as a personalized stationery company. However, with the onslaught of social media, text messaging, and emails, people stopped writing notes. So I was in a position where I had to decide if I was going to shutter my business or pivot and do something else. And since I had named the company Whatnots, it seemed like the prime time to add Whatnots in, things that people use in their daily lives to make their desks pretty. You can find us online at effiespaper.com, E, F as in Frank, F as in Frank, I, E, S as in Sam, paper.com. You can also find us on Instagram at effiespaper. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 